0: You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. This is going to be another interview with one of our contributors to the 2020 Guide to Denver Real Estate Investing Strategies. And my co-host today is Terrence Stoll again. Terrence, how's it going? Doing great. Thanks for uh, Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And our guest today, um, i sure a lot of you, I know a lot of you guys know, it's Derek Marlin of Elevation. He's been on quite a few podcasts talking about what he does for Fix and Flips, uh, some of the consulting he does, and just investing in general. So Derek, I'm glad to have you here today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Chris, Terrence, good to see you guys. Yeah.
1: So, you know, we reread this chapter before we sat down with okay. you and hopefully a lot of the people listening to this read it. And I would recommend everyone, hey, you were in the 2019 book, read your chapter, yeah. then read the 2021, 20 you get lots of just tidbits and just seeing the evolution and growth right. of what's people going on is. I always find very interesting. So, you know, Derek, you and I have talked quite a bit on the podcast, off the podcast, and I think you and Terrence talked a lot less. So Terrence, I'm going to let you lead the way with questions since I already know some of Derek's stuff. So I want to hear your point of view and what you yeah. dig up. Yeah, no, it was,
2: uh, first of all, thanks for being here. I really enjoyed uh, reading your chapter I think like Chris said, you and I have met several times. I think we met actually through Chris a couple years ago. We've had sushi, we've had beers. But uh, one of the first things that stuck out to me from reading the chapter that I really want you to go into more detail on that Chris wouldn't let me ask off camera (laughs) was, uh, so I knew about the sports background with the Denver Broncos and we had football in common. We do. And then you talk about getting into the bond market and kind of the financial services industry. Yep. So talk to me about... What I'd love to know is, what did you learn from that, that transferred to real estate? And what was that transition like going from
0: working in the financial markets to real estate? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my whole family is a bond family, so not equities and not stocks. It's purely fixed income. At one point, I'm originally from back east, and there was like 40 people with the last name Marlin in the fixed income in the bond industry. And so it's kind wow. of that weird, long lineage. Thought I wanted to go that route. Um,
1: Were went they into all school. like fifth cousins or... <laughs>
0: No, 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 all like direct. My oh, my wow. grandfather, yeah, was wow. in the bond business long, long ago when they used to um, literally write tickets and physically run them down the street to trade. Um, yeah, I mean, back in the day, boondoggle type of trading wow. in the 50s and 60s. Um, and then my father was in the business. Uncles, cousins, first cousins, second cousins. I mean, everybody was really in the bond business. So I kind of grew up. And that that's business. a big risk you stepping outside that. It, it, and it was a hard time that yeah. I that I was given, um, especially by you know my folks. A little bit. I went into undergrad with a finance degree. Thought, oh, I'm gonna definitely work on Wall Street. Got one semester in. I'm like, this sucks. I gotta go into <laughs> marketing. So I changed. Um, like you said, went into the sports industry. So did that. Loved it. Um, and then decided I wanted to get out of working in the corporate world and right. start my own thing. So it was this nice hybrid of my dad had sold one of his companies prior, still wanted to be involved in the business, but on a much smaller scale. And it was this perfect marriage of, you know, 16 years later saying, hey, let's start up a little boutique trading company. So he was the trader. Um, I was the bond salesperson. So I would go out and actually sell the inventory we had to customers and clients and um, and then I did that as, you know, my day job. And that also enabled me to then flip at night because I was done, you oh, know, nice. by two or three o'clock. And so then I started integrating flips into the business model in 2014, kind of trader by day and then doing flips at night.
2: And what was it initially? Was it like the common fad of like HGTV and Chip and Joanna gains? or like what made you want to get into flipping in 2013 and
0: 14? What was it that attracted you to that? You know, I... I got it from a rental perspective. So I started buying rentals in 2009 and I really liked that. And it was just the next evolutionary progression of how I could get into real estate. I knew that I wanted to have a larger play in real estate, but I wasn't quite you know, foot out the door necessarily with the bond industry. And right. I just thought it would be a great way to make larger chunks of income. Um still very active because obviously, as you know, flipping takes a ton of time and a, a ton of yeah, money. It's full and contact. Yeah. It is full contact yeah. sport. You're right. right. Good good analogy. Um, but I wanted to use those chunks of money to then go back and buy more rental properties. And then it was, I guess, things do happen for a reason. So my dad and I did it for almost two years, um, made me 10 times the investor because I had to go oh. and get securities licenses. So I have well, they've expired since, but a 63, um, a series seven license. And I was studying for my series 62 to be a registered investment advisor. And it just helped me look at real estate and more of a trader's mentality. Um, And so I think a good analogy for that would be is, knock on wood, I've only had one deal that I've lost money on. Um, But if I saw something coming down the pipeline, like we'll talk about it here in a minute with Corona, I would think of it as a trade and I would rather cut bait and lose some money and live to fight another day and then look at my net a year later, then go, oh my gosh, I'm so hell bent on making this property work, or we've over-rehabbed it and we just have to stick with it and sell it. It just helps me think of real estate from a trader's mentality, not just a fix and flippers mentality. Right. So you can
2: stay in the game. I think Ray Dalio talks about that in his book. As long as you can stay in the game, you're going to win long term, but just don't make a move that's going to take you out, Yes. take you out of the game completely. That's really good. Yep. So I love how you talk about elevation as an investment company with multiple Mm -hmm. services, Mm -hmm. not just flipping So walk me through how you were able to morph into that and the evolution
0: of of elevation into multiple You know branches and services you're offering Yeah, it was I think kind of a hybrid of what I was interested in and then i'm a big proponent of laying the groundwork uh, Ideally a year or so in advance and then seeing what comes down the pipeline so started with rentals um, did that kind of you know part- time if you will, jumped into flipping. you know still that's our bread and butter that's something that we love to do and it's a huge part of our experience. Um, a function of having the ability to do anywhere from four to five projects well at any given time leads us to wholesaling. So we do wholesale. Um, we sell among other fellow cash buying investors. So when we hit four or five, we're just too busy at my current staffing level. so that opened us up to wholesaling. So we did that. Um, then from kind of looking at the divisions, I decided that, um, I probably missed the mark by at least two years, but I thought multifamily was getting overvalued here Mm -hmm. in Denver. Right. So sold there or sold here to go out of state. So then started a division, still I'm huge proponent of rental properties, but my personal strategy is out of state. I know you've got stuff in Mm -hmm. Des Moines, so Mm -hmm. we've got that commonality there. Um, I'm in Cincinnati as kind of our market. So we're still rental. So it gives us a division to do rentals just out of state, um, And then we just really are hell-bent on creating the best systems possible. And when we ended up talking to other fellow investors, they said either, A, you should sell this system or you should teach. Um, And it's kind of ironic because my background is actually I was a TA in undergrad and then I was a TA in graduate school. Um, So So it's always come naturally to you? Yeah, it's come naturally and I really enjoy it. So that's where we started our consulting and our uh, academy, which is our two-day program. So it's kind of naturally morphed. I don't say that I'd had this you know, big Venn diagram with right. everything starting from the top and flowing down. It's just kind of evolved over time. And I'm, it's interesting. My risk tolerance is high as far as this business, but my risk tolerance of adding divisions is very, very strategic because yeah. I'm always thinking, man, what could go wrong? How can I plan? How can I save the money? If it does go sideways or sucks our time, where can we pivot? So I, I'm slow to add. I probably should have added faster.
1: Can you expand on that? Cause that's, that's interesting to me. And we've, we've talked about this yeah. just in our own business. I'm kind of curious here to talk more about that, the way you, you phrased it, and it caught my attention.
0: I would say, so I have a, a strategic business consultant that I, I work with. Um, his name is Doug, and he the name of his company is called The CPA Coach. Um, and what I love about Doug is he's like a de facto board of directors, and mm-hmm. so I really bounce a ton of ideas off of him. So we're trying to think three to five years out, but as far as when I actually pull the trigger and implement it. I'm really, really cautious about that because I've gotten. I know we've talked about this, Chris. You know, I've gotten sucked into shiny object, right. you know, kind of theory, do, yeah. really, really sure. quickly. And I'll give a, a super fast kind of explanation of that. So I had a, a person that I was looking to potentially partner up with here locally. He moved out to Las Vegas and said, "There's a, a unique opportunity to flip out there." He had a connection with the city of North Las Vegas. And so I kind of looked at this unique opportunity to source properties. I said, okay, this was not in my, you know, well detailed laid out plan. It's, you know, year or two in advance of flipping in other markets. We want to do that, but we're probably another year off. And I said, man, this looks really good. We jumped at it. I went to Vegas three times, started vetting the market, researching, spent all this time and energy. And then unfortunately he decided it wasn't the right market and he moved. And so my boots on the ground left. And so I'm like, dang. Um, So that made me almost gun shy to right. just jump right into a different business vertical. It's like, no, I should continue to vet it, let it almost come to me, and then it it's almost cosmic that it should happen, not forcing it to happen, I
1: guess. Yeah, I, I always struggle with it because I, I totally get what you're saying, but then someone's like, hey, there's an opportunity. True. And it's like, you know, I grew up playing baseball. That's all my mm-hmm. analogy. So, like, I'm like, I have to swing the bat, I feel like a Good lot point. of times. And understanding, hey, if I swing the bat and I miss, it's not going to, like, you know, take me down or, yeah. like, you know, bankrupt me or anything. But, hey, I can... Yep. I can take a calculated swing in the back because I'm like, if I don't, I'm afraid I'll regret it later. Yes. And sometimes those opportunities that pop up, they can be a- amazing business ventures, but I don't know how to like quantify. Like, I get you like, hey, plan it out, strategic. Yeah. Oh, this is like two years before I wanted it, but yeah. oh, this looks so nice over here.
0: Uh, I think if you can get to that decision point of saying, okay, let's go down the road. You're right. You don't want to sit on an opportunity and say, well, I'll get to that in two years because that's probably gone. But where you can either say, this is an all-in opportunity and I need to run with it or- Decide, look at your, you know, decision metrics of, is this a good thing for me to spend my time on and then make that decision? That's probably where I've tried to get better where before I would have either run down the rabbit hole or completely avoided it. It's how can we be this hybrid yeah. model where you can evaluate an opportunity. Uh, maybe don't quickly run to Las Vegas, for example. <laughs> right. um, you know, Or don't go all in on that. Don't yeah. go all in on that. Right. Luckily, financially, we didn't go all in. I went all in on a time, but yeah. then it's like, could I have flipped two more houses and made another, you know, 30 to right. 60 grand? I mean, technically, I probably did cost myself some money. Yeah. So it's just that kind of hybrid way to look at
1: it. So one more question. Like, so when you, yeah. when you look at those things, do you do you have any following those rules where like, hey, if I do something, I'll put 5% or 10% of my time and attention and money towards this project? Because mm-hmm. I've talked to a lot of marketers and investors, and yep. those are the two common themes where I've heard them they will do like 2% or 5% or 10%. I'm curious between your marketing and investing background, yeah. you've got some rule of thumb like that you use now to test out new new opportunities.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I would have to go back and slice the amount of hours. Um, luckily from a financial perspective, we don't really go all in until we know it's a good opportunity and we can do so much without investing too much money. Yeah. Right. So the money hasn't been a hurdle. The time definitely has. So if I can really vet something within a month and say, either yeah, this is something that I'm really interested in, I think it's a good opportunity and I should run with it, then I can look at it. So as far as a percentage of my time, probably that month it might be half of my time evaluating if this is the right opportunity. But if I aggregated that over six months, maybe it's 10% of my time. So uh, that's a good point. I'm probably not analytical to the point where I could say within a certain week, I'm going to spend okay. you know two hours a week, one day a week evaluating new opportunities. I try to block my time, but I would say if I'm looking at it, I kind of go all in probably half my time for a month, yay or nay, and then move on. Okay, One way or the other.
2: I really like how you, you know. So it sounds like flipping was your core. Mm-hmm. That's what you wanted to do. Two thousand fourteen. Yep. You made a decision. You went all in. You took some action, and then out of wholes, out of flipping, you realized that there was an opportunity for wholesaling. Yep. And I think part of, uh, and then from there, it sounds like you enjoyed teaching, and so that came naturally to form the academy and do those kind of things. So yep. it, was, it sounds like it was a natural progression based right. on solving problems. Correct. That you had. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like you had this grand plan in 2014. These are the eight things I'm going to do. It just happened naturally over the
0: course of time. Yeah, it is. And what I really try to do is think back of why I'm trying to make a decision. And if it fits in one of our five core company values. Right. It's something that will typically move forward with. And one of our top ones is, is value creation and creative problem solving. So if I can check those boxes, right. it's going to fall into our wheelhouse and I'm going to want to do it. If it's something that's totally outside of that, it usually, if I'm being yeah. focused, I, I can say, nah, maybe not the right opportunity. Yeah, I really liked how
2: you talked about even the people you hire, everything you kind of put through that core value filter. Yes, I thought that was really interesting. Anyone out there, I think it comes from the book Traction, right? Yes, that you've actually, You actually gave to me Yes, and I read and that was really good. So anybody out there, that wants to learn yeah. about creating core values and making decisions inside of that. I thought that was, that was really interesting. So you just said something that I used to struggle with. Mm-hmm. And you said, when you get to five or six projects at a time, yep. you know, that's your capacity. And that's when it's time to click the wholesale button Correct. And, and sell. That sounds super simple, but how did you get to that number? Because I remember back in the day, we'd have 10, 12 projects going yep. and I'd find another deal back, like, dude, we have to do this deal. You yeah. know, and there was no, yeah. there was no uh, system yeah. for, to say, hey, once we get to this number, this is we're at capacity. I would just go out and try and find a new contractor and, you know, try and make it happen. Yep. So walk me through the thought process you had of getting to that number at five to six is my capacity. Yeah. And after that wholesaling, I think that's brilliant. Walk me through how you got there.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. It's a function of two things. It's last summer at one point we hit eight projects at once. Now I'll define that as we had one under contract, ready to buy in let's say two weeks. We had six currently going and then we had probably one or two on the back and under contract ready to sell. So not active as far as physical projects with stuff going on, probably hit six at one time. I have a project manager and I have a business development or an acquisitions manager. There's just not enough hours in the day. So it, it was two different things. It was one really stepping back and saying, are we making sure that every single step in our process is checked efficiently, or are we missing steps, which causes us backflow and, and, you know, screw up times with right. what we're doing from a workflow capacity. And then I try to think of, okay, am I truly making the amount of money that I can make doing things efficiently? Um, and then it was also, so I'm married and I have three kids. <laughs> and then there was that look from my oh, wife yeah. who's wh- kind of gave me that supportive look. And I am, I mean, so blessed. My wife has owned her own business for almost 16 years. Um, she just sold it, which is really exciting. Oh, nice. Um, but gave me that qu- that look of support of like, okay, I'm, I'm in your corner and I'm your fellow entrepreneur, but if this doesn't change, like you're going to burn yourself out. Your kids are going to be pissed off. Like this is not a good family dynamic. So, right. you, I mean, it's this perfect kind of, luckily all things coming together without blowing up per se, but it was just that inflection point of, Holy crap, I have too much going on. Is the money really worth it? And then for me, I have a sister company called Flow Investments, and that's where I do my out-of-state mm-hmm. investment, uh, apartment investing. I really looked at my time there, and I can spend way less time. It's a longer lead time and cycle to make significant money and set the business up for success in the future. And so I'm like, dang, if I do another flip or two, it's hard to turn away that that nice chunk of change Instant today. Instant gratification, right? Instant gratification in one to three months. But it's, it's playing the long game. So it was like these three things together that kind of made the perfect storm. Actually, last summer, almost to the day, probably June wow. of last year, where it's like, no, we can handle that. And then we say, do we want to hire more people? Or again, do we want to work on other business um, verticals or different businesses? And that's how we decide to spend our time.
2: I mean, Chris, you talk to a lot of people. I mean, I've never heard, me personally, I've never thought about like, what's my max and when do I need to turn on wholesaling? I mean, have you heard that from other flippers before? I thought that was, reading the book, that really was something that stuck out to me that I really, really enjoyed and thought we should highlight.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people just in general for, for business for flippers, they very much like a, a you know, get, if it's get a deal, I'm gonna do on it. One thing right. And hyper focused, mm-hmm. and then you know, I, I one thing about you there because you're you're like, hey, cool. This is kind of like I'm at that. I've maximized the return on here enough. Yeah. Let's where where can I diversify it? And I think that's, I mean, I try to do that, and I think you do a, a really good <laughs> right. job of it. Thank you. I think that's that's a great thing. Talk about flow because this is yeah. your. I want to make sure I I, I know we have talked about this is more more. So I can remember correctly, this is more just like your your longer term passive investing it is uh for yourself and and just for investors as well, right?
0: Yeah, and I'm, and it's funny you say that. I've kind of stolen a page out of Richard Branson's playbook, and so we actually rebranded about eighteen months ago from Elevation Investment Properties to just Elevation, and it was because of we wanted to open up multiple multiple divisions. So on paper, my LLC is Flow Investments LLC, and it is um, multifamily investing. I own a handful of apartment complexes. I call it personally, so not in a syndication, and then I just did one syndication that we sold off this past February. So we are actually rebranding it. So kind of in the Richard Branson model where there's Virgin Airlines, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Cruises, things like that. So now there will be actually, um, excuse me, not Virgin. I'd be a (laughs) lot. Literally stealing someone from Richard Branson. Yeah, I'm I'm going (laughs) to trademark infringement. I have a lot more zeros in my bank account too, if I was Richard Branson. Um, But no, it'll be Elevation Apartments but it's, it's kind like of a that. full circle thing to where, again, I'm, I know you guys are huge proponents from a rental perspective. I've just made the shift to do it out of state. I think we'll come back to Denver at some point, but um, it's investing for the long term. It's buy and hold. Certain assets, we look at it as legacy assets. I want to hold them forever. Um, I want to pay them off, and I want my kids to not necessarily know about it, but have some financial security in the long term. Certain deals we want to syndicate and hold for that five-year timeline and keep building that. And then it helps me. It's a way to get into another market. And rather than sit and wait for the Denver market to cycle in eight to 10 to 12 years, we want to be able to move around the country and look at different opportunities.
1: What's your crystal ball say for the Denver market cycle?
0: I think eight to 12 years okay. are just normal market cycles. I'm not saying Denver has eight to 12 years worth of runway left. I just think there are not even crashes, but just corrections and yeah. modifications that inherently happen. Let's call Corona one. Right. We were just talking before we started rolling that is this a two month blip or do we see a rebound here four months later? I don't know. But inherently you look at every market in the country, there's an ebb and a flow eight to 12 years from now. So rather than saying, well, dang, if I feel like I can get a better value out of state from an apartment perspective, let's go there. Then we've got boots on the ground. We've got property managers. We're starting to develop relationships with contractors. Then as that market trends up, Cincinnati, for example, can I flip there in the next year or two? Mm-hmm. So we can you know, kind of lay out our runway and build our network to potentially flip. Or full circle, um, one of our – truly our core is – you know, um, is full circle value is what we say as far as um, delivering to investors. So can I actually buy rental properties out there, fix them up, use that turnkey model and sell them back to Denver if people want to diversify? You mm-hmm. want to have some portfolio yep. in Denver, some portfolio out of state. Um, we we kind of, you know, put that runway together and it's just something that we've looked at and that helps me segment the time.
1: So it, what popped my mind when we were talking about just, you know, the, you know, being in this market, waiting for the market, yeah. sounds like you're just... An investor who's swing trading in like the very big macro almost. Just like, hey, you see that trend here? We're going here. Yeah, Here's another trend. We're going that. I mean, maybe I'm incorrect on that, but just that's what popped my mind as you were talking about that. Just, hey, you're you're seeing the trend, you're riding it, and you're positioning yourself, hey, when this trend, you know, not exactly bouncing off a resistance line or something, but like hits your mark, you're going to swing back over there.
0: No, actually, that's interesting you say that. That's exactly the fact. So I've got family that lives up in Montana. um, And my father-in-law, who's been a huge mentor to me, um, he owns self-storage in a small town in Montana. So... You know, talking about planning years out, it's like, can we check hopefully all the boxes of being in the hot Denver market and flip and wholesale and teach? Can we be in a moderately appreciating market that's great for cash flow like Cincinnati for multifamily and then can we check the box for smaller um little more western markets? So for me, I went to Montana State for undergrad, so I'm a little privy to you know being west uh, you know of the Mississippi and the Rocky Mountains, so can we pick up self storage in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, things like that. You're right. So it's like instead of just trying to wait for opportunities here um, or I guess maybe spend extra energy to create them, can we create them in different parts of the country and be ready when they pop up? Yeah. Yeah. So again, I don't own any self-storage anywhere, but I'm laying the groundwork to hopefully pick something up in a smaller market because multifamily doesn't make sense in a really small market. Flipping doesn't make sense, nor is wholesaling in a small market. So if I can do those
1: three things, I I think that's about as good as I can do at, you know, a small boutique company. What's the cap rate on, like, on a self-storage unit in Montana? You I, know, I know nothing about this world. Yeah, that's a good question.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you're definitely looking at the nine and ten percent. Or I always say percent. That should be it. A, a nine or a ten cap um, on that type of asset. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and they're, those, I, they're just so to hard to find. It's okay. so dang hard to find. Because they're
1: cash cows, right? People just buy they're, them and hold on to them.
0: They are 100% cash cows. So you really have to be creative. I mean, I went to the International Self-Storage Expo um, in Las Vegas two years ago, which should be rebranded as- Sounds like a good excuse to go to Vegas. It was a really good, don't tell my wife. That was a really good excuse. Babe, there's this
2: conference there. I forget what it's called, but I gotta be there. I have to be there. It's key. It's really
0: important. It's critical. And the funny thing is, is the last half day, they set up one of the ballrooms so buyers and sellers could get together um, and hopefully do some business. I'm not joking. There was literally not one seller in the seller room, and you would have gotten swarmed like piranhas if you were actually a seller. And there were a bunch of dudes just walking around the buy side, hoping to talk to somebody who wants to sell. So they're hard to get. um, But when you do, they're definitely right. They are cash cows. So we're trying to get them, and we're trying to set up that infrastructure to do it. We just haven't had success. Mm.
2: That's really interesting. So taking a step back, mm-hmm. you know, Chris and I love talking to, you know, first of all, about out-of-state investing, because I yeah. think I hear it a lot. You obviously are doing it. I've mm-hmm. done it. And because um, people get in love with these numbers on a piece of paper yes. in other cities, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. I got to go to the Midwest. I got to yep. go to the South. I got to go to Dallas or Florida and all these, and chasing kind of like this dream of owning all these rentals that are purely passive and that just, they get mailbox money. So talk to me about how you chose Cincinnati. Yeah. And what was, you know, what was the data and and the, uh, and the cycle to get there?
0: Yeah. So I purchased three years ago and I started researching four years ago, um, just to put context to it. So I owned three communities at one time. The most I ever owned was 115 doors. Mm -hmm. We just sold off 65. So yeah, talking about your upfront planning and your paper uh, returns versus reality, it really depends upon the specific asset. And so the way that I chose that is I looked at the Midwest and the Southwest overall. Um, so I looked at cities like, yeah, definitely Texas, mm-hmm. looked at Kansas City. Um, obviously, Cincinnati was a key. And um, we decided to go with Cincinnati for two reasons. One was it it was the most diverse economy that I could find right. in the Midwest. So it's heavy on medical. It's heavy on technology. Um, it's got a little bit of manufacturing. It's right. really big on healthcare. Okay, and then interestingly enough, so you did you did research on the market. Yeah, what supports it? Yeah, what kind yeah. of industries are there? Yeah, nice, interesting. Yeah. Research the market, and then what was the defining decision of I narrowed it to Kansas City and Cincinnati. Two things that helped me pull the trigger. One. It was a cheaper, all things being super close to even is it was a cheaper acquisition cost or a price per door to buy in Cincinnati. And then um, there was grumblings that Amazon was going to have a heavy presence there. Um, Much think of Memphis to FedEx. Mm, Amazon mm. was looking to actually have their prime hub there. And so I said, even if it hasn't been announced, that's my tiebreaker. And then I got lucky because they did announce, yeah, yeah, last year that Amazon, the major hub to get everything anywhere in the country within one day is cincinnati so that Amazing. made our yeah that made our decision so that easy. research really paid off then it paid off nice
2: and so talk to me about so you're in cincinnati mm-hmm. I know we've talked about you had some partnerships there. You syndicated. Yes. You ended up selling. I think you guys did really well. Yeah, we did. Talk to me about some of the biggest, you know, versus what you had on paper versus what it's been and talking about some of the struggles and things you've learned and where you're at, where you're at now.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. It was completely inverse. So we were looking at two metrics. We were looking at um, our cash on cash return being uh, very good Um, Meaning in the mid-teens. And then we were looking at our appreciation of the asset being very modest. I went back and I looked at 10-year historical appreciation, which in Cincinnati was 2.2%. I thought, man, that seems really, really low, but let's be conservative. So I underwrote the deal at 2.5%. And we bought a C-class asset. So for your listeners, that is um, definitely a little bit rougher area. Um, Definitely an area where you're having kind of entry-level working class. Some of your properties or your units are um, Section 8 residents and subsidized. So there's some great things about that, and there's some challenging things. Um, It was completely the opposite. We were able to um, actually—we were going to hold it for five years. We sold it in three. Okay. And um, for two reasons. One, the cash flow was good but not as good as we thought for that C-class asset because we had to turn over units a lot faster than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I had planned a four-year overall turnover of the property. So roughly a quarter of the building we would turn over. Right. And in barely two years, we turned over 80% of the property. Um, so it was a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and then we actually raised our rents so efficiently that we were by far the most expensive rents in the area. Mm. So I saw that capping out for a couple of years, and then appreciation was far greater than I thought. And our value hit what I had projected actually seven years from the day we bought it. So it was an easy decision to sell. So it was good um, day to day cash on cash returns, um, but not as good as we were hoping. And we financed all of our rehab through cash flow. Right. So we wow. were doing okay. Um, but it was definitely kind of a, a day-to-day, you know, struggle and emotional roller coaster. but the appreciation blew it out of the water. So it was an easy decision to sell that one. I'm still looking to buy. It just was, like I said, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to be the highest rent for a year or two and I can barely bump the rents, just sell it and look for other assets in Cincinnati. Yeah. One
2: of my favorite, when people ask me, you know, what are you going to buy or you know, are you going to hold or when are you going to sell? And, and, uh, it's, you know, we sell when we have a buyer. Yeah, you, know, when you have go. a buyer that, you know, that's when you sell and yep. it's pretty, so it sounds <laughs> yeah. like you had a buyer and it was the right time and, yeah. and it was, uh, it was the right decision to sell. Yep. Talk to me about, you know, I think one of the, one of the challenges for me out mm. of state and I think a lot of people is property management. Yes. So talk to me about how, you know, you and I have talked about it a lot. Yeah talking about how the how the battle's been on property management there. I know you've had some people, you were going to start your own, you've yeah. had third parties. Well, you know? Talk to me about what you've learned, the challenges, the failures, yeah. and then where you're at now with it.
0: Yeah. I'll try to keep it brief. That would be a whole separate show. We could show. Do a whole chapter on we that. We could yeah. completely do a whole chapter and a whole show, but I'll give the super quick overview. We started third-party property management, vetted what I thought was the best one at the time that was willing to take on. We'd only started with 50 doors between two communities. And um, did that That went super sideways within a year because they weren't keeping tabs on the maintenance expenses. Right. Um, so I spun off, had what I thought was a great individual property manager um, that was going to run our buildings. We acquired the third property so he could have a physical office and kind of run it in-house. And then we were on our way to trying to create an in-house property management division. Um, you have to have a licensed agent in that market. So we did need a partner. Um, another year of that, fast forward to, we got to the kind of deal signing um, aspect of creating a, uh, a entity where we have, you know, a portion of ownership to it. Had three people back away because they got cold feet for various reasons. And then found out that the person who was truly running it day, for, day to day for me, um, you know, was doing some super shady suspect things. So had to fire him. Um, and full circle, it just took sadly three different swings at it and found a really good property management company that is smaller. And our philosophy is we'd rather be a bigger fish in a smaller pond Mm -hmm. with these guys that are based in Northern Kentucky and they are amazing. And so we'd rather grow with them and kind of work side by side, even though we have the number of doors now to, to have big managers take our Mm -hmm. phone calls. Um, we've gone full circle. So I'd still love to have that as a division of what we're doing, but we just have to find the right partner. So I think the end takeaway is it's going to take a few times. I know you've run into this in Des Moines, but Mm -hmm. um, if you can do it in-house, great. If not, it's going to take one or two swings at the right manager to find the right fit. No matter how upfront and open you are and trying to vet them, it just takes time and trials and tribulations.
2: Yeah, 100%. And I think the the punchline is for people out there that are trying to decide if they should invest in Denver or in Mm -hmm. their home market versus out of state where it looks a lot more attractive on paper is just that, you know, Chris, you can attest to this because I think you have this conversation probably more than I do now, but is you have to have property management dialed in. You can have the most attractive opportunity in, you know, the most podunk city or whatever the city is, you know, it doesn't really matter. If you don't have property management dialed in, it doesn't, you're never going to see it. You're never going to see it. And that thing could look like a double digit return, you know, and your dream of, of mailbox money, yep. you know, for the, for the rest of time. But if you don't have property management locked in and, and, uh, and I just, it's amazing to me how, how difficult property management is. Yeah, It's, um, it's so hard to find good people to do it. And I think the smaller and the more tertiary market you get, it, it becomes even more I agree. of a, uh, of, uh, just, it's just rare. Yep. You know, I think in Denver, there's some pretty solid, they're pretty institutional, pretty, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're they used to dealing with sophisticated investors that look at their, look at their monthly reports and they're yep. going to hold you accountable. But you get into places like Des Moines, Tulsa, Kansas city, Indianapolis, yeah. Cincinnati, Louisville, uh, Lexington. And mm-hmm. I just think it becomes just even more challenging just because it's more of a mom and pop local. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have the big national names or, or a lot of money behind them. And I, I don't know. I just think it's, it's, uh, it's just always surprising to me how many people we have, you know, everyone has the same kind of experience going out of state. And, but yet people are doing it every day. Yep. And, uh, and I just think that's a really interesting point that people need to factor in. You know, yes. you have to have a line item on your spreadsheet of property management and you have to, you have to probably double vacancy, double maintenance. Yep. And you're still probably to, you know, uh, you're still probably not close to the number it's going to be, yeah, you know, I, I completely that first agree. year or two.
0: So. Yeah. You got to be conservative in yeah. writing it and just know that it's going to be the right long-term play if you've made the right decisions, but yeah, it's not going to be as efficient or fast as you think.
2: It's going to take time. Yeah. Like you said, I think the punchline is you made a bunch of mistakes, but because you were disciplined in choosing the market and you yep. did some market research and I'm guessing you flew out there and talked to a bunch of other people and yep. you know, you did probably six to 12 months worth of research. And because you did that research it ended up paying off, even though, yeah. you know, property management may have had some some speed buns and, and some, uh, yeah, some shortcomings along the
0: way. Yeah. And you gotta be hands-on. I think it's interesting. There's so many people out there. What used to be the, you know, flip, um, training of the day is now syndication training of the day. And, and I've done it and I'm a huge proponent of it, but it's not as easy as people make it sound. And so the one, you know, you're, I was out there, uh, I was out there nine. Wow. No, I was out there almost 10 times because I wanted so almost to almost every month you're out almost there, every yeah. month and you have a family of 5 yeah exactly and I wanted and I had a moral obligation to myself cuz I had my own money in the deal and I had an obligation to my fellow investors um, and then I would always save for your listening audience budget a time to do a surprise appearance mm-hmm. 100% no matter how good your manager is you need to show up and you need to secret shop your own stuff um, and then, you know, afterwards tell them, oh, I was there and things are looking good or, oh, I was there and stay there a little longer and let's meet. Cause that's really good. no matter how good you yeah. think it's going, you got a secret shop.
1: That's like, that's good. That's
0: a good nugget right, right there. there. Yeah. yeah secret 100%. shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So did you do that? I did. And yeah. what was, and what
0: was it like? Is that when you realized that they were doing shady stuff? Yeah, there were two times. One time I secret shopped it and I, and I confirmed my gut reaction that, that things were not going good. Um, and, and what then, happened? What was the,
2: what was the color behind that? Um, if you can share it, yeah, it was me letting the manager go oh. on the spot. But what did you see that confirmed your your head? like? What did you experience
0: when you secret shop that confirmed your your oh, hunch? Yeah, so I was. It's a it's an interesting kind of dichotomy of you don't want residents to have access to you as the owner, because then you're going to get your phone ringing with, you know, right. leaking toilets oh, and yeah. stuff like that, especially at at hundreds, if not thousands of doors. But you still want the ability to have an open line of communication to double check your manager. So it was a couple of things where the reports just weren't looking as good as they should be. It wasn't as profitable as, as we thought that it should be. Um, and then, uh, you know, I ended up, getting somehow somebody found my information and they were blowing my phone up. And so I said, let me call this resident back. And I wanted to be the person who's still um, you know receptive to being yeah. open to that. So I talked to the resident and I said, okay, give me the lowdown. And you always take it with a grain of salt. you know yeah. we, we have a great manager now. And if a person has a bad day or they're not getting what they want, they're going to throw that course, yeah. manager under the bus. So you got to take both sides. Right. But yeah, the, the resident confirmed what I thought was happening. And then I had my broker um, or the main broker that I work with out there, go just check on the property and send me pictures um when I was being told it was being runway, and I, run one way, and I could see pictures that it wasn't., um, and so kind of triangulating those three things made me realize now this is definitely not going good. so I got to go out there and kind of drop the hammer.
2: secret shop. I like that. That's yeah, a shop. That's uh, a good one. That's a great tidbit. It's a great uh, that's a great point. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really unique, you know of of the many things that you do really well mm-hmm. is, uh, and we've actually talked about doing this together. We haven't had it work out yet, yeah. but is your, your partnership flip program. Oh, right. Yeah. So talk to me about kind of where that was in, you know, how that came to be sure. and how that's going and, and, uh, kind of what you're looking for, for listeners out there
0: that want to get yeah. into flipping, you know, maybe, uh, how they can get into that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a great question. It, it stemmed from two different things. There were a lot of deals that we were looking at that we get about half of our deals off market. And we've been that way, um, I've been doing this six years full time now. So almost every year, it's about half of our deals are off market. So we would meet with a bunch of sellers. They were um, they were not in the distressed category. They needed to do something and they were in that category. But the, the phrase I always use is the house had great bones, but they were seeing their neighbors sell for top dollar. They weren't really going for the all cash offer, even though our offers essentially are just... Take market value, back out the fees you're going to pay, and that's pretty much our number, give or take, unless it's a total disaster. So we're able to show them our spreadsheets and show comps, and this is why our offer is what it is. But we were missing on a lot of deals. And so I said, what's a different way that we can kind of skin the cat? Coupled with, um, I use a business line of credit, and my business line of credit, when we had a couple really good deals come our way, was maxed out. So I said, either I go borrow hard money and um, take you know a nice chunk out of the profit, um, or do I partner with the homeowner Um, and I give them the best of both worlds so our partnership flip is we truly partner and team up with someone someone brings us a house so the quick easy scenarios are somebody owns rentals they want to sell their one rental that has the most deferred maintenance the most pain in the rear um, and they want to maybe recapitalize. and they don't want to spend another 50 grand
2: on it or they don't have the 50 grand or they don't have the 50 grand that's right
0: Um, so, that's a person we work with. We work a ton with folks in the senior citizen space where mom and dad are moving on to an assisted living facility. Adult children need to do something with the property. Many times, you know, that's really expensive to put mom and dad into an assisted living mm-hmm. facility. Right. Even ones that are, are um, kind of lower on the budget, totem pole, are still really expensive, let alone beautiful, super expensive, nice ones. Um, so, they need extra money. So, what we do is we partner up, we have the value of the property that we determine in its current condition. I spend all of my money and time doing the rehab, running the project, client doesn't have to pay for a dime, and then we list it and we split the profit, uh, the extra net profit. So super quick math is if a property is beat up and worth 300, but we think we can sell it completely fixed up and it's got an unfinished basement and we're adding two or three bedrooms, we're finishing out the basement and adding a bathroom and we can sell it for 500. Our starting point is 300. I do $100,000 in rehab and we're able to sell it for 500. So I created an extra $50,000 in profit for that client. And then the nice thing for me is, is I'm not buying the house. So I don't have to invest my $300,000 in capital. I'm investing 100 to make 50. Um, So it it gives us the ability to not only keep our capital requirements a little lower, but offer people an option that would normally just say, no, I don't want to do that. So it's been a really great thing for us. And we actually just literally looked at a property yesterday from a client that we... Partnership flipped a fourplex wow. for a family two years ago. That was really, really a great experience. And they just called and said, Hey, we've got another house. We want to talk to you about partnership flipping another one That's of their cool. properties. So, knock on wood, we're hoping to get a repeat client partnership flip because, perfect example is, you know, it was a fourplex, was a disaster, wasn't rented. Dad moved into an assisted living facility. We rehabbed the properties to really great rental quality. Level of finish We leased it out So he was going from You leased it up for him too? We leased it up for him So he was going from 400 bucks a month Because one lady Hadn't had her rent raised In 13 years And he wasn't renting (laughs) The other units To we leased For gross rents Of 58.50 And then um, We spent 72 In rehab and then we were going to list it for 749 and we actually found an off market buyer at 755 and sold it before we listed it so nice. they made an extra like 70 grand That's amazing. Yeah, on top of their 542 that we said this is your value today because if you right. want to sell it I'll still give you the cash offer. Right. So it's this kind of cool win-win and we just really enjoy doing it and it's just a unique way to do business. Oh, I
2: love that. I love how you're solving a real problem out there because that happens a lot where people have had they have a lot of equity in the property, yeah. but they don't have the cash right. in the bank to rehab yeah, it. They
1: know how to rehab it, I or mean, or even no, want to no, deal yeah, with they it take you're right. that for
2: granted. That's right.
0: Well, yeah. and then we just show them what our rehab number is because we don't mark anything up either. And normally, they're going to work with a general contractor, and that's the business model, and that right. makes sense and if they're, they're coordinating it. Twenty
2: percent premium on it, if not more.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So we'll say, here's our you know our invoices. Here's our open book. Try to find you know a rehab where you're rehabbing three thousand square feet of a hoarder house <laughs> and have it for really? under a hundred thousand it, dollars. It's not it's, gonna happen not going to happen. So we just tell them, here it is. We're not marketing it up. We just want to split the profit with you and list it and we're good to go.
1: I love it. So we got to wrap up here yep. in a couple minutes, but uh, Derek, I went to ask this last time we talked, but I've had a couple clients and listeners ask me about your Academy plans. Yeah. Cause I know you were doing that yes. and then pandemic kind of hit and right. kind of killed some stuff. Yep. you mentioned maybe going virtual. you mentioned maybe doing some smaller stuff. What's mm-hmm. your plan here or are you still doing it? Like what's the plan? Because yeah. Yeah. Some people have asked.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Yeah, it has changed. We had done one in January and then everything obviously world changed a little bit. So we're kind of um, tweaking it a little bit to just have it a really small boutique feeling so that we can physically have some distance between attendees. So we're going to do a 12 to 15 person academy Um, The next one we're doing coming up is July 23rd and 24th. Okay. And we're going to run it out of um, this really cool co-working space over in Englewood. And so we'll teach people every step of our system over a super intense two-day course where we do about a day and a half in the classroom. And then the thing that I love about how we teach is we do the second half of the second day in the field. So everything that they learn, we will point around and walk around and show them. They'll meet with our general contractors. They'll meet with my project manager. They'll meet with... Everybody kind of on my team. So they'll get kind of in the classroom and in the field experience. And so we're going to do that one. And our goal is to just do some smaller ones. I mean, we didn't ever want it to be huge and crazy. Um, but yeah, we'll probably do a handful of them um, that are that 12 to 15 person range um, for people that either want to get into it or people that were like me starting out and did, you know, a couple a year. And we'll teach them how to truly scale and, and grow a business. Um, and then they have access to our wholesale deals and to our kind of vetted contractors too.
1: Yeah, I i mean, yeah, I've known you for, I think, two-plus years yeah, now or right. so. But, I, yeah, I a lot of people are interested in flipping again. Everyone knows that's not my game. Mm-hmm. But I would, uh, from everything I know, I would put your Academy at top list versus all these na- nationwide ones that come in or yeah. the, the whatever HGTV personality of the month comes in to do yep. their, their spin. Because I've heard a lot of horror stories of people, like, oh, yeah, I did win, and I'm in $30,000 worth of credit card now.
0: Oh, my gosh. So, yes, that's the one thing I can promise yeah. you is we will never say – Take control of your financial future and go home and raise your credit limit to then Sick ask them now. to charge the fee the next day. Uh, there, and I I went through all of them because I wanted to understand how the business worked when I was first getting going. And now just- That's the business model for most shop of that, them. That is the business yeah. model. And so we're different. We charge less. We teach what's going on today. And then we also are really vigilant about sharing real-time data. Like I've got two clients that we're working with now. And we one of our COVID pivots was, hey, let's do some condos. Let's look at one bedroom, one bathroom condos in really nice areas because we see this little arbitrage opportunity. So we pivoted during COVID and we've got three going right now. Oh, I and love I that. shared that with my clients. I'm like, hey, I know we were focusing on this three months ago, but I think this is a good opportunity. We're doing it. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong too. And I've got three of them. So, you know, we're kind of in the boat with you, not just teaching you something from four years ago that you
1: saw on HGTV. Uh, send me the link for the page yeah, for that of I'll course. put in the show notes. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap up here. Derek, thank you. Thank you. Terrence, thank you again for co-hosting, man.
2: Yeah, that was great. and Derek, yeah. I really enjoyed learning more about your story. I know we've we've met on several yeah. occasions, but that was really helpful and I love what you're doing. And uh, yeah, I guess my final question would just be, you know, for people out there listening sure. that want to get involved, mm-hmm. want to do something in real estate, maybe they're kind of where you were in 2014. Yeah. They're in between careers, been doing some of them, but they have yep. that itch for real estate. You know what is your advice and, and you know what could people bring to you that then would create an opportunity for them to work
0: with you and partner and, and yeah. be able to
2: do something with you?
0: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, Terrence. I think, you know, I have an interesting story where I literally had my dream job. I know you and I have talked about this because of our shared football yeah. background of I got a job with the Broncos. I went and got an MBA in sports management, got my dream job and it was great, but my dreams changed and, right. that, and that's cool. And I think people's dreams are changing, whether it's on purpose or forced because of the craziness that we're going through. So I think I have an interesting framework to help people kind of either jump in, you know, with both Mm -hmm. feet or stair step it, kind of like I did. So if people want to work with us as a, we've got a consulting program where we'll work one-on-one with people to help walk them through a flip. Um, or again, if people want to bring us a property in those different avenues that we talked about, we can work in a partnership flip capacity. Or for the people that have got experience but they want to kind of like take that next step and truly grow the business, we've got this two day academy because there's you know a bunch of people out there that are experienced and super smart. But if I can give them a handful of ways, you know, not to over improve, introduce them to different lenders, connect them with my contractors, give access to our wholesale deals, we can he- help like three different groups of people. Oh, and I then that. I I want to then. Have them turn around and say, hey, Derek, I've got a deal. I want to buy from them. I mean, we're going to have this alumni program so that this is not a one and done. I want people to call just like we're all getting together and business will develop from this. I mean, it's not rocket science. So it's like, let's just treat each other well. Leave meat on the bone. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of one of my sayings that- We'll all do okay. And Mm -hmm. if we can help people, they're going to call me about deals. And like you said, we're not going to do rentals locally, so we're going to send them other people's way. And I mean, it's just, it is a full circle value way to do business and live life.
1: And it's not
0: rocket science.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Good stuff.
1: All right. Well, thanks guys. Thank you.